Good morning, Watermark. Today's scripture is Matthew 10, 16, 16 through 42. <sighs> I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you would be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house is being called Beelzebub, how much more members, uh, how much more the members of this household? So do not be afraid of them, for there, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid, you are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household." Anyone who loves her father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves her son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. Good job. Well done. All right. So, I know what you're thinking. This is going to be long. I don't think it'll be any longer than normal. Um, Here's the deal. There, there's so much going on here, um, yet there's only one thing going on here. So instead of like spending weeks and weeks and weeks pulling this whole thing apart, this would take a long time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some tools this morning um, that may help you go through this on your own. Um, I'm going to give you the overarching sort of idea and some tools to get deeper within this if you'd like to. Um, some of the stuff that's in here, I'm not going to necessarily touch on. I don't think it's necessarily relevant to what we've been talking about or will be talking about. Um, and it's not relevant to necessarily like understanding the gospel and the kingdom. But um, 
If you would like to go deeper, um, then we will go today. Um, write this down. There's a commentary, who, someone who goes really deep. His name is, is, is Greg Keener, K-E-E-N-E-R. Um, he writes a, a socioeconomic commentary on, on the book of Matthew. Um, he's a New Testament biblical scholar, a brilliant guy. Um, and he goes into a lot of depth on a lot of what's going on here, some, some what's called eschatological views that people are holding. I, I don't want to go into all that stuff. I don't think it fully matters. There's a few things that I'm going to go into that matter that will help you understand because this, you'll notice the passage is written, it sort of has these waves of like nice sayings and then like terrible things and then like nice things and then like really bad things. And you're like, what, where are we going? Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to give you a new lens with which to view this particular passage. Uh, first thing I want you to remember is the book of Matthew is not written chronologically. It is not January 1st, this happened, February 1st, this happened, and March. It doesn't move through time like that. Um, Books of the Bible, uh, the New Testament especially, were written in community. Um, There was one person who wanted to write a book. Let's let's take Romans, for example. Paul's going to write the book of Romans. He's going to gather a community around him to write a letter to another community. And picture Paul sitting in like a courtyard of a house with like Timothy and... Um, and some of these other people in the church, men and women, um, Jews and Gentiles, and Paul has these ideas he wants to teach, and together they're going to collectively, like over a few weeks, come up with an outline of what they're going to write. Then they're going to hire, um, in, they're going to hire a scribe to write to take this outline that they've made, because most of them couldn't write. That's, that's not what it meant to be literate. Literate meant you could read, not write, in the first century. So they're going to write these letters. Um, they're going to hire a scribe to like write this thing in a professional poetic, incredible way. It was an art form. Writing a letter was this work of art in the first century. So um, the book of Matthew, Matthew is the lead of it. Matthew is the pastor of a church, the Matthewan church. Um, And the Matthewan church collectively is writing this letter to the church worldwide about, well, this particular section is about evangelism. Uh, It's about, you're going to go into the world you're going to preach the gospel, the kingdom. You're going to do exactly what Jesus did. You're going to heal people. Um, you're going to uh, make people whole again, restore them. People who have been separated, you're going to put them back together. Um, and you're going, to, you're going to establish the kingdom of God in their hearts. You're going to paint a whole new picture of a new way to live, new existence, a new Lord, uh, just a whole new thing. So in the middle of all that, Matthew's community wants the church to know something else about this mission of evangelism, about being missionaries in the world. They have more to say that is sort of, on its face, it's really confusing because there's so much going on. But really what they're going to do is they're going to say, if you go off on on this mission, here are some things that are going to happen to you. Okay? Now, I'm going to show you two verses, and I'm going to show you sort of some of the things that they did to put these things together. And after this, I think you'll have a little better view of of how to read this thing. I'm going to start off right here on verse 17, right in the middle of it. It says, be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils um, and be flogged in the synagogues. So a minute, uh, a word about this, a quick word about this. Uh, The Romans allowed the Jewish people to govern themselves as long as the Jewish, Jewish people were not rioting, as long as the leaders could keep control of the towns. So, if someone was going into a, a, a territory, like a Jewish sort of part of town, and they were proclaiming what the Jewish people considered heresy, which, by the way, the message that Jesus was giving to the Jewish people was heresy. 
He was, here's what Moses says, here's what I say. It was, it was, it was this whole new thing. So he's saying, when you do this, um, the Jewish people are going to arrest you and they're going to take you before the council and they're going to beat you. They're not going to put you to death. The Romans did that. The Jews, the elder Jews didn't necessarily do that. However, every town has one of these. I've talked about this before. Um, it's like a platform where there would be, um, there'd be like courts, like public courts held. Um, there's a plaque over here behind the piano and in Greek it's written Bema Seat. This is what's called the Bema Seat. Um, you'll, you'll see this several times in the book of Revelation, the great beam of seat judgment, this public court thing. Um, so uh, in the first century, in, in Matthew chapter three, Jesus mentioned, uh, mentions settle something before someone grabs you, grabs you by your cloak and drags you off to court. That was literally the way they would do what's called a citizen's arrest in, like, in that day. It, it, it was called an epagoge or something like that in their day. You, you would grab somebody by the cloak around the neck and you would drag them down to the Bema seat, and you would, you would climb the steps where the elders would be sitting there, and there would be a public court hearing about what they did to you, and they would issue, the elders to, uh, of the synagogue would issue a decree about what would now happen to you. You'd be flogged or whatever. Um, so this was a regular thing that would happen. So Jesus says, when you go and you speak to these Jewish people, by the way, this is the one in Corinth, um, a, a, they would, even though there's one sort of beam a seat in the city, it'd be used by sort of everyone in these different courts. Um, so um, Jesus kind of says, when you go out and you speak to the Jews, because they've been commanded to go only to the Jews, not to the Gentiles. When you do this, you're going to be branded a heretic and a blasphemer. You will be arrested. You will be beaten by the leaders of the Jewish cities and the towns. Okay, so there's that. He says that. Then the very next verse, he says this in verse 18. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and the Gentiles. Um, okay, so now this is a whole new thing because suddenly we're being arrested and taken to Gentile court. So this is what happens when you speak to a Gentile community. Um, now, persecution of the early church happened for one reason. Because they declared Jesus as Lord. That's a huge deal. Um, and I want to be clear. The early Christians weren't persecuted because of intolerance. They weren't persecuted because they were saying Jesus is the only way to heaven. They were persecuted by, because they were saying Jesus is the only king, not Caesar. Uh, this is treasonous. Um, this is against the empire. Okay, This is, uh, you're following a king that is not our kingdom. Your allegiance is to another king. The Christians were regularly arrested, beaten, and killed, crucified, bludgeoned to death, fed to lions and wolves, um, tortured to death for not declaring Caesar is Lord and that the kingdom of Caesar will reign forever, that Rome is the ultimate victor. And so this guy right here, um, Caesar, put out decrees all the time just declaring Christianity illegal, arrest them, kill them, eradicate them, crucify them in my kingdom. Now, um, I say all that because first off, the Matthian church wanted you to know that when you proclaim Jesus as Lord, people who serve other lords will get very upset with you and they will persecute you. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit about why the Christians were persecuted, um, specifically, not generally. Um... And basically, 
the Jewish people are going to be offended. The Gentile people are going to be offended. Basically, all those in power are going to be offended. The most important thing that I want you to see, however, in this is that both of these verses are back to back, even though Jesus has already told them, you're not going to go to the Gentiles. You're not going there yet. You're just going to go to the Jewish people. Well, then why are we talking about Gentiles and preaching to them and being witnesses to them? Okay, so the way scholars talk about Matthew chapter 10 is they say that Matthew chapter 10 is not one speech given by Jesus. Matthew chapter 10, sort of like the Sermon on... Sermon on the Mount, I I go back over here, I'm always going over here, back over here. Sermon on the Mount um, and Matthew 10 are very similar in the fact that they are collections of sayings put into like, organized by subject and dropped into the text. Um, Matthew chapter 10 is apparently a collection of everything that Jesus said about persecution. Um, Before crucifixion, post-resurrection, everything that Jesus said about persecution It has all gathered it together and it's put in one easy to read, pleasant guide. So chapter 10 is like, is like cliff notes and it's like the the simple, the compact Jesus guide to persecution. Okay. That's what this chapter is. And there's a lot of things going on here. There's stuff all over the place. It doesn't flow. Um, And it's, it appears on the surface to be very random. Um, Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to separate these into sort of subjects um, I'm going to give you a tool to, to help you sort of read um, some of these passages in a whole new way, okay? Um, first off, I'm going to start off right here, uh, Matthew 10, starting at verse 24 and 25. It says, the student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a student to be, liked by their, uh, to be like their teachers and the servant like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? Okay. You have a teacher and disciples. We're going to talk about the household idea in a minute. We have a teacher and we have disciples. Um, the disciples aren't going to be treated better than the teacher. Um, this whole passage is about persecution. Jesus has just finished talking about how everything I have done, you will do. I have preached the kingdom, you will preach the kingdom. I have healed people, you will heal people. I have reconciled people, you will reconcile people. I have proclaimed a new Lord, you will proclaim a new Lord. But Jesus also was persecuted. Not yet, he hadn't been persecuted yet, but this wasn't written when Jesus said this. This was written later by the Matthean community looking back on the persecution of Jesus. And if, if Jesus was treated one specific way, How could we ever expect that his disciples would not be treated the same way if they're doing the same thing? He says, look, if you're expecting people to treat you better than people treated me, then somehow you're higher than me. Um, What you can expect is to be treated pretty much the same way or less than I am. And Jesus was persecuted. So the Matthew church wants you to know, as a follower of Jesus, this is what you're in for. And then they go into list all kinds of things. Now, um, this word here, Beelzebul, some of your texts will say Beelzebub. Um, it's a funny word. It's, it's, the, it's like the first century idea. It's a word that, that basically can be translated as, as like the accuser, Satan, devil, the evil force, just all that in, in the first century mind. Like it, was a speci- it, it wasn't a specific thing. It was kind of a general thing. Um, it's evil. And Jesus was regularly called evil. He was called under the influence of the devil, stuff like that. Um, he says, how much more the members of his household? So this word household is where I'm going to spend some time now. Because if you understand the household, then you're going to understand a lot of other passages in this chapter. 
First off, I want to point out some verses to you that maybe you heard this morning and maybe you heard them for the first time and you're like, well, that's not loving and that's not comforting. Here's some of these. And in verse 21, it says, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. It's bedtime stories. Uh, 34 through 37 says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on earth, peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. That text is abused regularly by warmongering Christians. Um, For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her (laughs) mother-in-law. That's that's normal. Um, A man's man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Uh, Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. That one has also been used for abuse in the church. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That one as well. Um, 32 and 33. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my father in heaven. Sounds really brutal um, on the surface. If you're reading this verse, modern day America... Um, interpreting it all literally with no context whatsoever as if it was written last year. Sounds awful and terrible. And any writer who writes like this today would just be silenced and ignored as hateful. So there's that. The reason people read it like this and think these terrible things when they read this text and they interpret it as terrible is because they have a picture of the modern family that looks simply like this. It's just two people with kids. And so when you say brother, it's these two. And they like, these two are going to put those two to death? What is this? What is going on? Like, wh- why would Jesus talk like this? Okay. Um, thing, thing one. Um, Jesus is quoting a passage from a, a pr- prophet named Micah. Micah prophesied that when the Messiah comes, when everything is about to be made right again, brother against brother families will, will turn on each other and break up. They, it, they had sort of this, what's called an eschatological viewpoint that is, it is, it is terrifying. This is how they thought things were going to go. Um, they were wrong about a lot of things when the Messiah came. Uh, this, is, this is something that they said, that they said families will be torn apart, they will turn on each other, they will hate each other. There's one passage where Jesus talks about, and you will find yourself sitting at the table across from your enemy in the same household. Now, this was going to be a sign that the Messiah had come. Okay, so Jesus claims this passage and says, and the Matthean church claims this passage and says, this happened in the time of Jesus. And here's what we mean. The Roman household, I've talked about this before. I'm going to refresh your brain with this and then I'm going to add something to it. Okay, Um, so it goes like this. Um, The Roman household looked like this. There was um, a man who owned the house and the family, his, his, he was called the paterfamilia. It was the patriarchal society in the first century. Um, under him, there would be his children and his slaves. Um, they pretty much um, were all owned by him and controlled him. He could literally kill his children or send them out on the streets if he wanted to. Um, he had a wife. He owned her as well. She had slaves. He owned them as well. Everyone was at his own disposal to do whatever he wanted with at any time. Um, Everyone in the house served the paterfamilia, whom they called Curious, Lord, whom they called. I mean, if you watch like these Downton Abbey kind of shows, they're going to call the master of the house Lord. Um, that comes directly from this idea, um, the, the Greek word Curios, it means Lord. All, everyone in the house 
was working for the glory of the Lord. Stop me if you've heard that before. Um, They worked for the glory of the Lord because as their Lord gained glory and status and identity and um, moved up societal ladders, the whole family did. So everyone in the household was working for the glory of the Lord. They would would speak the name of their Lord. Um, They wanted all the world to know the name of their Lord. And they would do everything to the glory of the Lord. Okay? The language that they would use. So, this is the household. When you read about brothers, um, turning on brothers, when you read about in-laws and and sisters and all that, you're picturing sort of all this kind of stuff. This is what Jesus is talking about. Now, um, okay, let me get where I'm going um, before we do this. Okay, so the early church... um, All of them came from this kind of situation and they gathered as a church. When they gathered as a church, they came, they became what um, sociologists call in the first century a surrogate family. Um, The church was made up of, it was led by one Lord, Jesus, and it was made up of all kinds of people from all kinds of places. There was foreigners, there was slaves, there was freemen, there was women, there was the wealthy, the poor, high status, low status, masters and slaves, all together as equals in the church. <clears throat> this was a brand new scandalous idea in the first century that began to wreak havoc in the Roman Empire um, and threatened the very fabric of their social system. <clears throat> in the same way that we would talk today about how um, the fabric of society is the family. Um, in the ancient world, the fabric of their society, what held it all together and made it function and work well, was the household. The, the pater familia leading over and owning everyone in his house. And as long as that was intact, the economy of Rome was stable. Christians came along, they started churches, um, and people would come in as equals. There would be no male figure there leading over them. Instead, there is one Lord, Jesus, the curious. We work together collectively as equals for the glory of the Lord. They would use language like this in Galatians 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You belong to Christ. Then you are heirs according to the promise. This is the church. Now, These were communities that transcended normal categories of birth, social status, education, wealth, power. They called each other not slave or free. They called each other brothers and sisters. This is how they referred to each other, Adelphoi, literally kinship. It's not like in the way you would call somebody your bro um, or your girl. It was like, it was was literally like, this is, um, it would be more like, Sibling, this is my sibling. All children of God together, the same. Um, This was a new idea. So this did two things to Roman society. The first thing it did is it gave outcasts a family, people who had no one, people who were alone and fending for themselves, begging on the streets, prisoners um, who had lost all of their honor, the rich who had toppled from the tops of, of their social status to the bottom, They all came to the church and they were all equals. Um, The scriptures are are rife with people like Paul correcting churches for separating into groups in the church. 
He says, we will not do that. He writes to the city, uh, the church in Corinth, and he says, you're taking communion, you're sharing meals, you're doing the agape feast, the love feasts, and you're separating into classes. The rich people are eating first, like they did in Roman society, and the poor people are eating last, and they're separated, and they're eating the scraps from the table. This is not how we do this in the church. We are the same. All of us are equal. So this is the first thing that this structure did. The second thing that it did is it broke up really well-connected families. For well-connected, particularly um, amongst the city elites, the gospel, it became a huge problem for them, a big problem, because there was this concept of the primacy of your family, of your household. Jesus will use the, house, the, the word household about three or four times in, in Matthew chapter 10. Um, and he talks about, you're going to find yourself sitting across from your enemy in your own household, and it's going to be difficult. And this is, the language is all in there. Um, but for the first century family, the primacy of your family was all that mattered. You would never serve for the glory of another Lord. You would never say, um, this is my pater familia. I, work, I live in this household, this familia. Um, but on Sundays, I go over and I join this family. We call each other brothers and sisters. And I sing the praises of another Lord. If someone finds out you're doing this, you're done. You have betrayed the family, the household. You're out. Brother against brother. There are, we, we have tons of records of people being thrown out of their houses, of people losing honor, of rich people being, being thrown down for taking part in the church. Centurions being um, exiled from their ranks, losing all their honor. Um, parents, like the text says, um, joining churches and their children, insulted by the loss of honor that they were working towards, turning their parents into the Roman authorities and having them put to death. All of this was real. So Jesus, when these families, these households, when this is happening in the church, Jesus, this, the early church claims this and says, this is a fulfillment of what Micah was talking about. This is it. Okay? So when you read the text and you see all this family stuff, um, do not remove it from its context. The, the value there is that when the gospel takes root, and we don't play the world's games of social status and separating each other based upon what we own, what we've done, or what we're worth, um, the systems of the world begin to break down. And it is detrimental to them. And the church begins to flourish. It, and really, it's only detrimental to the people at the top because the people at the bottom were finding all this hope in the church. And the early church built like an army of, of outcasts and lowborn people. Right? So, this is a lot of what Jesus is talking about in this place. Now, um, Jesus puts this passage in there too, in verse 39. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. All of this goes with this household family stuff. If you find life over here, you're going to lose your life here. Okay? And if you lose your life here, you will find your life here in the family of Christ. Okay? It's all connected. It's all one big picture. So that is one of the reasons that Christians were persecuted in the Gentile world and in the Jewish world. And the Jewish world is mainly for their heresy and their blasphemy. Um, for, um, for the Gentiles, it was the disruption. Like, this threatened the very fabric of how Rome worked. Okay? Um, the second thing that it threatened was the institutions of slavery 
in the first century. It, it's threatened the very institution. Now, um, I'm, I, don't, I don't know if you realize how many slaves were in Rome at the time. Um, <clears throat> there came a time when the majority of the people uh, were likely slaves. Um, at one point, one of the governors decreed slaves are no longer allowed to wear the slave uniform or they will realize how many of them there are and they will overthrow us. There were tens of thousands of them, okay? Um, <clears throat> sorry, it's a, it was, a, it was a, a massive part of the Roman economy. It relied upon all of this. Now, um, there's several things that, that the church did in the first century um, to, to pretty much neuter the slave uh, the, slave, the, the practice of institution of slavery. First off, Christians, while not moving to end slavery in the first century, um, I have to say, they could not imagine, nobody in that day could imagine a world when people did not own other people. People had always owned other people. Um, it would have taken a really creative person to imagine a world in which nobody was owned by anyone else. Um, I know we like to have this sort of chronological snobbery where we look back and we think, well, it was wrong and I can't believe. I would have just stood up and said, that it, there shouldn't be slaves. You wouldn't. That thought never would have crossed your mind. It, the world wouldn't make sense in that way. But what the church did is they pretty much neutered the whole institution um, in their communities. Um, here's how they did that. First off, I want to give you a couple of quotes. Here's one um, by Clement of Alexandria, uh, I believe second century church leader. Slaves are like ourselves. And he starts talking about the golden rule and saying, we are all the same in the eyes of God. No one is higher than another. There are plenty of, of um, examples of churches in the first century being led by slaves whose congregants were their own masters. This was a thing that happened, okay? Now, there's another quote here by a, a man named Lactantius, and he says, he says, slaves are not slaves to us. We deem them brothers after the spirit. In religion, fellow servants. Um, the whole idea of how they pictured uh, other people in the first century uh, in the church was vastly different than how the world did. Um, now, uh, this one is fascinating. So by the end of the first century, there were a lot, like thousands of slaves. By the end of the third century, it was tens of thousands of slaves in the church. Um, the most interesting thing to me is that when you inspect the graves of the early Christian churches, you will not anywhere find one reference to a member of a church on their tombstone being called a slave, even though thousands of them were slaves. They just simply didn't refer to them as slaves. They are always called brothers and sisters, always. But you will find plenty of non-Christian graves clearly labeled slaves, lots of them. So this was another thing um, that was incredible about the first century church. Um, a lot of slaves held high offices in the Christian church. Uh, it was not uncommon for elders and deacons to be slaves leading the churches. Two well-known ones, um, the, two of the bishops of Rome, um, Callistus and Pius, uh, they were slaves. It was well-known that they were slaves. However, also, uh, Callistus, in the, year 22, um, in the year 22 AD, he actually at one point declares the Christian church was going to sanction this marriage between a highborn girl and a, 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 a slave boy. A, a, a rich highborn girl and a slave boy. This was illegal under Roman law. And the church was like, we don't care. They're getting married. 
They love each other. All right. Now, this is how um, they sort of undermined the entire institution of slavery in the Roman Empire. This, again, was another reason that they were persecuted. This was very dangerous for the economy of Rome. When Christianity, when the church is what the church should be, um, in, injustice, unjust systems are disrupted. Always have been for 2,000 years now. They always will be. Okay? Um, several other things were disrupted in the Roman Empire too. This is the city of Ephesus. This is the, uh, the library of Ephesus. Um, Ephesus was the center of emperor worship in the first century. Um, idols were sold everywhere. However, uh, it, was, it was a massive part of their economy. However, uh, in the book of Acts, if you, if you look at chapter 19, you will see a really interesting story um, about a silversmith named Demetrius who gathers all his um, fellow silversmith idol makers and they start complaining that the idol market is crashing because the Christians are in town and they're planting churches and people are claiming a new Lord and they're rejecting these gods. And, and in verse 27, he says, there is a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty and they're losing their jobs and it's difficult for them because the church isn't taking part in any of this. It's all baloney. And they're like, no. There is one Lord, Jesus. We're not going to take part in all this. Um, a lot of these temples were, were incredibly destructive to the society. Um, there were temple prostitutes that would roam the streets at night. Um, basically, they were houses of sex slaves, a lot of them. Um, they were just terrible, terrible places, and the Christians would have had nothing to do with it. They just rejected the whole thing. There's even a passage by um, a man named Pliny the Elder. He, he, writes, to, he writes to a Roman governor, um, and he starts complaining. He says, he says our idol sales are plummeting. Um, our temples are empty. We're not selling any sacrifices. And he's basically telling about all the damage the Christians are doing to their unjust, oppressive economy. And we're like, yes, because that's what happens. Um, the gospel should be disruptive in kingdoms of this world. When Jesus is not Lord, injustice will make its way into every government system in this world. That's what will happen. Expect it. Um, there's plenty of scriptures that talk about darkness, um, principality. We, we fight against principalities and, and, and powers and darkness uh, in rulers in high places. I created some noise on Facebook this week about that. There's, there's, there's a known understanding in Scripture from beginning to end that when um, people get in touch with power, there are new temptations that they never had before. And so you can kind of expect powerful, powerful worldly people to say terrible things about other people, to do terrible things in the world, to do things that benefit other wealthy people and that hurt the lowest of the low and do their best to paint it as this is how things should be and you should get on board. And the scriptures talk about how this, this darkness is, is all over high places. We don't serve these high places. We serve Jesus as Lord. This is who we serve. Um, and it's not just that. The, the early church, so they put this whole package together in Matthew chapter 10, and they're saying basically, um, again, if you're doing everything Jesus was doing, 
things will get difficult. Because when you exercise the gospel, you are going to end up sitting at the table across from some people you wildly disagree with. You will end up in community with people that you disagree with and sharing communion with them. It's not going to be easy. Okay? Um, You will have splits in society when you begin following this new Lord. People aren't going to like it. Powerful people, people who are invested in you thinking a certain way, they're not going to like what you're doing. People who are profiting from whatever, this and that, you will stand in their way and they will not like it. Persecution of the church has always existed. At this moment, persecution does not exist really of Christianity in the Western world. I would argue that. However, um, I would like to read you um, an article from January 4th, uh, 2018. This year, January 4th, Newsweek article. It talks about the persecution of the Christian church. It says, The persecution and genocide of Christians across the world is worse today than at any time in, in human history. Um, Western governments are failing to stop it. Uh, a study by the Aid to the Church in Need said, uh, the treatment of Christians has, has worsened substantially in the past two years compared with the two years prior and has grown more violent than any other period in modern times. Not only are Christians more persecuted than any other faith group, but ever-increasing numbers are experiencing the very worst forms of, pre- of persecution, the report said. Uh, the report examined the plight of Christians in China, Egypt, Eritrea, India, Iran, Iraq, Nigeria, North Korea, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Syria, Turkey, uh, over, over the period lasting from t- 2015 to 2017. The research showed that in that time, Christians suffered crimes against humanity, and some were hanged or crucified. The report found that Saudi Arabia was the only country where the situation for Christians did not get worse, and that was only because the situation could not get any worse than it already was. Yes, Christianity in Saudi Arabia is very dangerous, not just to the Christians, to Saudi Arabia. Christianity threatens the fabric of the, of the political and government structures of Saudi Arabia. It doesn't believe in the, oppression, the oppressing of minority groups and women. Um, it doesn't believe in enslavement. It doesn't believe in any of these things that the Saudi government tends to take part in. Um, And so, yes, Christians are persecuted in all these places because Christians specifically have always stood apart from earthly regimes and power places at every point in human history, really until until the time of Constantine and very recently. Um, Christianity should be regularly dismantling um, through the gospel and the church unjust institutions of this world. We walk in and we say, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is not, this is not Jesus. That is not Jesus. This is good, that is not. It is not partisan in any way, but it is usually very political. We speak truth when injustice exists um, and, we, and we point to Jesus and we say, this is actually the path of Jesus. Have you heard his story? What you're doing here, this is a good thing. Christians have always existed in this other place, this third space in the world. The church has always been like this surrogate family for the people who never could find a home. The church has always been a place where um, um, it, it it is a family of worldwide Christians from every culture and every corner of the world gathering together, taking communion and affirming body of body of Christ broken for you, blood of Christ poured out for you. And this is what we do in the world. Um, It should not be a surprise when Christians enter into persecution. It should not. 
And in fact, if you're practicing it, you will regularly be getting pushback. If you are actually practicing Christianity the way the early church did. Um, I have a brother who serves in, uh, I've talked about him before, he's been here before to teach. He serves in West Papua in Indonesia. They found a tribe out there called the Dao tribe. They look like this. Um, that's my brother over there. Um, they just had their fifth baby boy. They don't stop. Um, and he, I know he looks like a 60s spiritual guru. Um, but they reached this tribe called the Dao tribe in West Papua. Hiked for, for several weeks to get into the deep jungles there. Came in contact with headhunters and all kinds of stuff. Found these people. Um, learned their language. Moved in amongst them. Built a house like they have. Learned their language. Invented an alphabet. Taught them to read and write their own language. And translated the Bible and other books into their language. So now they can actually keep their own oral history. And write it down and all kinds of stuff. Um, but on top of that... Um, They've seen firsthand what the gospel does when it enters into a community like that. Because even in these small tribal places in the world, um, you know, a thousand people on a mountaintop in West Papua, all separated into little tribes in the jungle, there are unjust systems that rise up there too. That's what happens. And so when they got there, there was tribal warfare. Um, there was wife stealing. There was raids to take each other's land and property and slaughter people and take their stuff. There was oppression of each other. Um, they even had their own little economy with this money of seashells, and sometimes it would get out of whack and people would be oppressed by it. Um, it's a really interesting thing. This is what people do. And so they bring the gospel there, and one of the first things that happened is uh, when the people heard what they called the God talk. By the way, um, years before they went there, these people, these people decided there was people in the world who had the God talk, and they wanted to know, they wanted to know the God talk, so they sent runners out to the city. And like 15 years before my, my, my brother's family went there, um, they had been begging for the God talk and nobody would go. Because it's dangerous. It's really dangerous. They've had to hide from guerrilla warfare, all kinds of stuff. Um, but they went and they did this incredible work. And they said that one of the first things that happened was the war stopped. All of it. They had all these spears and bows and arrows and stuff. And they... Tribes would charge in to kill them. And they would recount the stories of Jesus and the church. They would recount the stories of, uh, of the fact that these people were created in the image of God, just like we are. These are our brothers and our sisters. And they would put all their weapons down and they would stand there and say, take whatever you want. You are made in the image of God. We will not attack you. We will not hurt you. And some of them were killed. But over the course of time, the warring stopped. All of it. And over the course of time, the people got healthier. Um, because now they were actually doing baptisms, and they, were doing all, and, and they never got into the water before. All kinds, of, all kinds of little things just began to make things whole again. What Christianity does to a society it, is it, if it's practiced right, if the church is being the church, it dismantles these, these systems of the flesh, and it replaces them with kinship. Because the church is a picture of the kingdom. The church is part of the kingdom. And to be in the church is to experience the kingdom if the church is being what the church should be. And so when Jesus talks about persecution, when you go out into the world and you go to plant these churches, there will be persecution if you're doing this right. Um, You will get pushback. You will, some of it will be internal because you will find yourself sitting across the communion table from someone whom you vehemently disagree with. Maybe you have harbor bitterness because their people did something to your people. And here you are, both sharing the body and blood of Christ. 
having to reconcile this bizarre thing that is the church. But it's all part of it. It's all part of the journey towards Christ. We have one Lord. It is Jesus who views us all as brothers and sisters in the church. And we set out and we call people in to join, which is why every time the Christians have gotten together, they've taken communion in the, in the ancient world, which is what we're going to do now. So our, uh, our communion servers, you guys can take the elements and uh, spread around the room. Um, there's one last passage that they put in here that is meant to encourage all those who know what's coming, who understand what it means to practice Christianity the way that it's supposed to be practiced. Uh, And it goes like this. I'm going to read it to you before we take communion. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, don't worry about it, about what to say or about how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. Uh, what is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who, who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. And this is the message that the Matthian church has for you when you set out to do the work of God. Don't fear them. They have other things to fear because of the work that they're doing. We fear and we serve and work to the glory of our Lord, our curios, Jesus Christ. Because he is Lord. And so let's take communion. Um, body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ spilled for you, I would invite all of you to take communion with us as brothers and sisters, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place. Make us holy. Make us righteous. Um, Above all, unify us. Let us see each other uh, as you intended for us to see each other. Let us see the world as, 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 uh, as you see it. Guide us in your name. Amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.